0: This is Antonio D. from Finding the God Spark Podcast. Just keeping the towel with Ant Boogie. Peace world, easy world. It's your man Ant Boogie. Don't worry about the name. Get used to the voice. And it's another episode of Keeping the Towel. Thank you so much for moving, rocking, and vibing with me. As always, it's a blessing to be in the mix with you. It's a blessing to even be here with you and y'all we are still in another opportunity for another fight i know some of y'all are like yo boogie i don't have no more fight left in me but not this time we're gonna keep going because yeah we ain't there yet we ain't there to be done we ain't there to say it's over and i gotta make sure that you're keeping your towel and be in the sparring gym again and if we're in the sparring gym you already know what that means boogie got a sparring partner with him but ladies and gentlemen all the way from phoenix arizona home of the phoenix suns My man, Mr. Cameron Harrison. Cam, are you in the building, good sir?
1: I'm here, ding, ding. Let's get in the ring, let's go, buddy.
0: Yeah, my man is ready to get in the ring. I love it, I love it. Cam, I need you to go ahead, get your hands wrapped. Put on your gloves, get your mouthpiece in your mouth. Come to the ring, get in your last set of instructions. And I need you and I to come to the center of the ring. It is Cameron Harris and Aunt Boogie. And it is official that the round has started. Let's get it. Let's get it. Let's get it. Let's go. So, Cam, put us back, bro. And let us know where it all started for you.
1: First of all, dude, I love your energy. I freaking love your energy. You, you bring so much fire to this, dude. I, I listen to you on a regular basis now. Ever since we introduced ourselves to each other, Decided to do this whole thing I'm like man I need me a dose Of Aunt Boogie I need me A reminder of why I keep my towel Why I keep fighting Hey that that's something I uh, I, I live by on a regular basis We'll get into that Where it all started though man to Going all the way back To about 14 years old My problem specifically Revolved I guess you'd call it An, an abusive household Not so much physically Or like uh, You know There wasn't like Molestation Or, or phys- too much physical abuse Going on Other, other than the uh, Butt swats That I probably very much well deserved there was just a lot of, a lot of anger a lot of yelling seeing my mom go through uh se- some pretty severe manipulation and uh feeling like feeling the need to lie in order to protect her kids very basic example my, my mom would always have to uh alter or lie about our report cards so that we wouldn't get yelled at and screamed at by my dad and so that she wouldn't get blamed for our failures so just, just little things like that like just the smallest little things could uh could set my dad off. And so we, we lived kind of in a constant state of fear. My, my dad was a good provider, um, but there was that that protector aspect that was missing from the scenario. So that that's where I think a lot of uh, the issues stemmed from was living in kind of a constant state of fear, starting to develop this sense of depression, anxiety, and looking for a place, looking for an outlet to find some sort of... Happiness, some sort of you know, to get to get that fix of joy, that that dopamine, serotonin, and oxytocin rush that goes on when you get your fix, when you hit that addiction, whether it be uh, alcohol, whether it be drugs, whether it be gambling, whether I mean, and for some people it's uh, working on their car. Some people it's hitting the gym. Like they they don't get that chemical fix from their brain without doing that thing, and so they keep going back to it. Mine, in particular revolved around pornography masturbation and sex and so that is what i leaned into and it all it all started you know it was just seeing some basic images as a kid and, and feeling things that i didn't quite understand and being too afraid to talk to anyone about them so instead i kept all that inside myself and the problem just got worse and worse and worse so that, that's kind of the, the origin of everything. Um, I mean, there, there's a lot more to it.
0: You said that your mom had to hide about grades and she would have been blamed. So basically your pops would have blamed her, like, hey, you're spoiling these kids. It's your fault why they're doing they're doing bad in school.
1: Yeah, essentially. Yeah. I mean, uh, we, we screwed up. We messed up. It would, uh, you know, we we'd get the, the butt swats. We get the spankings. We get yelled at. She'd get yelled at. There was just a lot of yelling, a lot of uh, a lot of really ill feelings in, in the house. And I, I'm not, I'm not here to say like, hey, you know, like this scenario was was special and, and deserves special attention because I, I know parents all across the country yell, and their kids are are the the victims of that that type of abuse. You know, parents get angry. They're they're, and and here's what I've kind of learned as a parent of my uh, as a parent myself. I, I got three beautiful kids, and I still. Lose my temper sometimes. I still lose my cool. And looking back, I'm able to look at my parents and be like, man, they were dealing with stuff. I grew up in a family of five boys. So if you can imagine five oh. boys running around the house, <laughs> screaming making a ton of noise of course my parents were on edge and 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 were yelling a lot and you know single income household my dad trying to provide for this for all these growing boys and these mouths to feed and the sports they wanted to play i understand now and it makes a lot more sense and so uh, that part of me has moved on from that and really kind of uh, allowed that forgiveness to take place and kind of said like look i now that i see where you're coming from I can give that grace not only to to you, but for the sake of myself of not carrying that burden of like, oh, I, I, I'm, still, I'm still holding on to these or harboring these terrible feelings toward my dad. I'm, I'm not. I mean, we don't have a great relationship still, but it, it has nothing to do with how I was treated as a little child. So where it kind of went from there though, once I got into high school and I no longer had my brothers around, uh, they were all, I, I'm the youngest of, of all those boys. And so they all went off to college and led by example. I, I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints. A lot of people know us as the Mormons. And, and we uh, we serve missions. We go somewhere for two years. We talk about Christ. And all my all my older brothers, you know, went and served their missions and set kind of these expectations. That was something that was really... Well, let's just say I I didn't go out for the right reasons. And uh, I went out unworthily because I had these problems with pornography that I was dealing with and I kept them a secret.
0: So put me to that space, Cam, that we all, as young boys, it all starts with just that one trigger and then it it morphs into something else. So if you can go back to when that was your, your first dopamine hit of that pornography or whatever material you watch for some it was a playboy it was something it was a video but what was that one thing that just hit you and then it just morphed into a snowball
1: honestly i think for me it, it, it actually wasn't pornographic images that got me into pornography it was my desire to connect with girls um, so it, it you know, it started out with innocent things of like flirting and, and playing like kissing tag and stuff in like third and fourth grade, you know, innocent little things. But but because those things were never put in check and they were never explained to me, like the feelings that I was having and stuff and those conversations were never had. There was no open line of communication for me to understand what I was feeling those feelings just exponentially started to increase not to the point that I ever became violent or aggressive against women which does happen to a lot of people when when you know those feelings aren't put in check but but to the point where I started to really only see women as objects to fulfill the desires that I had which was you know like I was making out with as many girls as I possibly could, and that started to escalate to hands start to wander, and and you you start to cross these lines that, and I mean these are this is happening in seventh and eighth grade, mm. where you know you're you see that kind of behavior in like PG thirteen movies amongst adults, and so I mean that was, now that I'm sitting here talking about that was probably one of the biggest uh, initiations into why I thought the behavior was okay, was that I, I'm seeing it on TV and movies. And nobody's sitting down and talking to me and saying, hey, look, what you're seeing right here, that's something that should be reserved for special relationships when you're older, you know, when when you can understand those feelings. Um, but being a 12, 13-year-old kid, 14-year-old kid, this is not something you need to be exploring at this point. Keep it to yourself for a little bit or at least talk about it. Let's let's figure these things these things out. And so since nobody was talking to me about it and I started across those lines I wanted to see kind of I wanted to see what was beyond that line and without without wanting to physically push someone to that point I figured I could just look it up and the internet still wasn't really a thing you know like it it wasn't a place to to find that stuff and so I found some pictures from some friends that they had in a treehouse. that's probably like every little boy's like story that's uh, over the edge of thirty-five, and um, that treehouse Playboy magazine, or under the bed, part yeah, yeah, exactly under the under the bed, or they know where their dad's stash is when you go to your friend's house, mm. stuff, stuff like that. So that's where it kind of that's where it kind of started, and then the internet kind of came out and totally changed the game. So now it was a matter of okay, not only do I have easy access to it whenever I want, but now. I, I have to make sure that I'm, I'm really hiding it because I didn't have magazines in my house. I went to a friend's house to look at that stuff. And now I was looking at stuff in my own house. And so now I had to get clever with my lies. And I, I, I would stay up till two, three o'clock in the morning once I knew my parents had gone to bed and that's when I would access the computer. What that started to do was not only did I get really good at lying, really good at sneaking out of the house to go cruise Main Street, pick up girls, bring them back to the house, make out all night take them back to their car, sneak in to get an hour of sleep in to go to school the next day, because I was just (laughs) so driven by this desire to fulfill those needs. Good liar, acting out. And now what pornography started to do was alter my brain to say that this is how women want to be treated. Women. Women want to be objects. They want to be forced into this stuff. They, they want to be controlled and bossed around. They they want me because I'm just an amazing, gorgeous, handsome man. So every girl must want me. And if they don't want me, then there's something wrong with them. And, and that's what pornography does is it turns women into objects of masturbation. Yes. It, it is not human beings with feelings. It is purely your body is something to provide me with satisfaction. And that's the kind of person I became. I would lie and say whatever I needed to do to get to whatever point I wanted to with a girl. And then I would leave him high and dry and never talk to him again, because I got what I wanted.
0: What we don't ever understand, particularly as as boys, young boys and men, is that yes, we think that that in the movies and in all this other things, are like, yeah, they like this. and But we don't understand like, no, they're paid for this there's there's a small few who like it but then there's the majority they're getting paid to do that and they're getting paid to act as you got older from high school moving outside of high school now what was now your addiction like what was the fight like for you were you able to curb it or did it just start now going into a space where it was now a new heightened level that you never thought you would go to
1: this is where things really start to kind of escalate because here's where you get to a point of you know where your value system is, you know what you want to do, you know the kind of person you want to be because yeah. that that's ingrained within you. Right. And and what I what I personally believe is that each of us being a creation of God, being a child of God, we have this light within us that tells us what's right and wrong. I mean, we know what's right and wrong kind of innately somewhat because of what our parents taught us and other because we just know. We know what we don't, what what's wrong in our eyes. And yet we act out against those values. And we, we just don't understand why. We know it feels good. So it's a really conflicting thing because we love doing it. And yet we hate how we feel after we do it. And, and that's one of the biggest conflicts that that starts to happen. And so I, I went to um, a university where, you know, there, there was an honor code, not only of like no no drinking, no drugs, stuff like that, but also no like sexual misbehaviors.
0: What, BYU? And,
1: yeah. Yep, yep. Yeah. at, at BYU-Idaho is actually where I went. If you mess up with a girl, you go in and you talk to your ecclesiastical leader and you say, hey, look, I crossed this line with this girl. Odds are they're going to say, okay, well, we're probably going to kick you out of school. And so naturally, because the the first instinct is to punish rather than to understand and to teach, you want to hide that because you don't want to be punished. Because what you did was make a mistake. And yet you still got it because you know what's right and wrong. You're still trying to hold yourself accountable. You're still trying to say, look, I I know what I did was wrong. And at the same time, I can't seem to stop myself from doing
0: it. Put me in that part. You're in a school that had these high honor standards. Right. And you're fighting. And I'm glad you said it just like that. I'm trying my best to live up to these codes and these honors. trying. But there's somebody down below that's like guiding my (laughs) honors, my code. So Kim... How difficult was it to be able to try to keep yourself, but at the same time, the flesh is getting you?
1: Right. Well, so, so here's the thing without professional guidance, without, or without having been raised differently to understand what was going on with my body and in my mind, Mm. the path that I had chosen for me to have been able to rein it in, control myself and turn myself around impossible. And, and I, I don't say that to diminish people's hope because here's the thing, it is 100% possible, but it's like what I just said needs to be included. You need to have those conversations that help you understand. You need to get professional help. If you're acting out against your value systems and you can't stop, go seek out help. Start forming a group of people around you that you know you can trust, that won't judge you, that aren't there to punish you, but people that will allow you to be yourself, to speak your truth, and then will accept you for who you are, but also push you to be who you want to be. For instance, all right, I'm, I'm gonna get I'm gonna get real personal here, if uh-huh. you don't mind, ladies um, and gentlemen.
0: Round three, let's go.
1: <laughs> two days ago, I relapsed. Okay. And first time in a year, I was at 362 days, and I relapsed. And first thing I first thing I did, you know, I'd call my wife. She she was doing a bake sale. Couldn't really talk at that time. I called a couple of guys from my group. They weren't answering, and I started to spiral out of control. And that act of losing a battle, I, briefly for a moment, I went back to the victim mode, to the justification, to the telling myself like, "Well, you already screwed up. You might as well just keep going." You know, you are now back at where you were four years ago, that same piece of garbage. And that voice in my head, I, I call it the spike narrative, that voice that tells you you're not good enough. Uh, you're you are going to have to tell your wife and she's going to divorce you now because there's going to be that final straw. You crossed the line. Uh, you're going to be kicked out of your church again. All these things start to go around in my head. And then one of my brothers calls me, not, not one of my family brothers, one of my fighting brothers, one of my recovery warrior brothers calls me, calls me back because I had called him. He goes, hey man, how's it going? And this is where the strength comes in that, that you gotta have. I said, hey, I just lost a battle. And his response was perfect. He goes, okay, cool, so what? How are you gonna move forward? It wasn't, oh man, I'm so sorry. Dude, you're so screwed you're gonna be in so much trouble. No, that's not how we respond. No, he goes, okay, no big deal. So what, so you gotta reset your numbers. How are you gonna move forward? What did you learn from this? And that totally flipped my switch because then he asked me, if this was me in your shoes right now, Cameron, what would you tell me to do? And I I was like, I tell you to get your ass back up. I tell you to stay in the fight. I tell you to, to make sure that you wrote down what happened, why it happened, why it's never gonna happen again, how you're gonna stay out of that trouble again. And he was like, okay. Cameron do that write down what happened why why it happened why it's not going to happen again and then act on it reset your goals and we had this you know 45 minute vulnerable amazing conversation and then when I got back home I sat my wife and I said hey look you need to know I reset my numbers this is what happened I told her exactly what happened she goes I'm sorry what are you doing what what are, you, what are you doing to to fix it? And I told her the conversation that I had had. I told her how I was resetting my goals, and she was like, "Okay." And that was it. And do you want to know why that was it? Why there wasn't this big fight? Why there wasn't this big, just like lashing out uh, in anger and pain? Is because we have an established relationship of trust. That she knows, she knows what I'm telling her is the truth, and she knows that I'm I'm taking care of it. I wasn't telling her, hey, I don't know what to do. I need you to help me out of this. I need you to fix my problems because that puts all this pressure on her. And I wasn't about to do that. I said, look, I'm handling my stuff. I got this. I just need you to know what's going on. But from there, I'm gonna handle this. This is no pressure on you. It's no fault of yours. You didn't do anything wrong. And I'm gonna keep moving forward from here. And that gave her so much more comfort because we have that communication we have that understanding
0: cam now leaves out of school did what he did college now he's going out into the real world and more ladies now because again as we oh, know yeah. Yeah, there's we more go. ladies than it was in college that's a campus now it's in the world where it's like ladies are more developed <laughs> more <laughs> mature you take me into that space where here comes this beautiful lady that you meet all of a sudden. What was this like now for you?
1: Yeah, so that really kind of has to go back to where I was in my relationship with my wife because my my marriage was not good because it was based on lies. I, I was still watching pornography on a regular basis. I was getting on dating apps and just, just because uh, because I had not established this line of communication and this trust with my with my wife, our our marriage obviously had holes in it and it had weaknesses in it. And so that started to cause a, a rift or drive a wedge between us. And so, and the further that wedge went between us, the easier it was to start to separate myself emotionally. And so since I didn't feel like I was getting uh, those needs met by my wife, which again, uh, and my therapist called me out on this, he said, dude, your, your wife is, she's just a tool for you to masturbate with. Mm. And that was one of the hardest hitting things that anyone had ever told me that I was just using my wife's body for my own pleasure, but that she was nothing more than more to me than an object to fulfill my desires. And for like my, an instant flat, my initial flash reaction was to get mad at him and call him out and be like, that's not true. But then I realized that was a hundred percent true. And that happened the reason it got to that point was because i wasn't communicating i was lying i was keeping secrets and i I was not changing my behavior i was not seeking out help i just kept saying you know what i'll deal with it on my own and i would white knuckle and that's the that's the big difference here and i want to make sure that we that we emphasize that point right there there's a huge difference between white knuckling and true sobriety Sobriety is a change of one's nature. It is a change of lifestyle. Whatever that needs to be, change your friends, change your job, change your location. But ultimately changing who you are. Whereas abstaining is just hanging on that bar as long as you can until eventually your grip's going to give out and you're going to relapse and then you're going to shake your hands out and you're going okay. All right, I'm going to try again and you hop back up there and it's just going to keep happening over and over and over because you're not doing anything different. You're not making any real changes. It's the definition of insanity doing the same thing over and over and over and expecting different results. It's not going to help. So, um, so anyway, going, going back into what happened, this rift had been caused and I just wanted to feel loved. I wanted to feel desired. I wanted to, I wanted to feel like the, like the guys in those erotic videos. I wanted to be treated like they were, with being looked at with passion and desire, and that their their bodies were some were an object to be desired. That's what I wanted for myself, and I wasn't getting it from my wife, so I went looking for it elsewhere. Mm. Because I was so groomed and convinced and and trained by the porn that I had been watching for fifteen years, mm. that I, I I believed that that's what. That's what real love was, was just a ton of sex. And because I wasn't getting that, I went looking for it elsewhere. And I found it in some pretty terrible places. And I I hurt a lot of people. One of those places was the wife of one of my friends. Oh. A guy that trusted me, a guy that I worked out with on a regular basis, a guy that knew me, that knew my family. And I I knew him and, and his kids. Like this was... This was an actual friend it wasn't just some random thing this, this was someone that lived four doors down from me I was so desperate to feel that desire and it all started with a text mm. saying hey my husband and I are fighting I just need someone to talk to innocent enough right Right. Let me, let me tell you right now if your friend's spouse of the opposite sex texts you and says they need to talk to you you say I feel bad for you I, I'm sorry I'm not the one that you need to be talking to though and then you block that number that it doesn't matter it, it is not worth it that's <laughs> right you put you put up those boundaries immediately because from there it turned to uh he doesn't find me attractive do you think i'm attractive and i took this super cute picture of myself today and it just evolved from there right right and and it was just it was so easy
0: Hmm. You go down this, like I used to speak with my boys on this before, this dark abyss. It came from dating apps to swiping right, swiping left, picking whoever you want to now tapping into an unforbidden and unspoken guy code. And now you cannot control it. When did Cam finally hit that wall? Like, holy crap. I think I just crossed some serious lines here.
1: My son was born. My wife was convinced things were doing better. We had been working... And well, <laughs> she had been working. I had been lying. It just got to one point that I was I was sitting in my uh, sitting in my son's nursery, holding him, newborn baby, just a, just a couple weeks old. And I just I broke down, and I started just bawling. And I, and I knew that I knew that I couldn't lie anymore. I couldn't I couldn't do it anymore. Like I I, I wasn't able to sleep. I wasn't able to eat. I wasn't able to focus. Uh, I was getting written up at work all the time, almost got fired because I was so distracted and you can't be distracted in the medical field. And so because of all this, I like I was spiraling so fast and so hard that I was just like, you know what? Uh, I I have to, I have to tell her. So you're watching porn Mm -hmm. at work? Not like, not like during work, but like during breaks, you know, go to the bathroom, pull out your phone. Yeah, distract yourself for a minute because you're stressed. Yeah. You, know, you need a, you need a little bit of a break yeah. and then you go back to work. Yeah. Yeah. Which I know a lot of people listening to this right, right now are probably just like, that's disgusting. Like, like what kind of a sick human being is this? But, but here's the thing. It's the same thing as someone who has to get their fix of drugs or, or someone that feels like they can't function at work without that cigarette. Yes. If you are so caught up in that, that you're like, I, I have to take my smoke break. It was the same thing. It was my smoke break. it it was it was the me time that would give me that quick shot of dopamine that 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 puff of relief to to my inner self and then i would go back to being miserable and you know a few hours later feeling the need to go take another cigarette go take another break you know what how whatever you want to refer to it as so i'm laying next to my wife in bed after uh and she had fallen asleep while i was holding my son And I'm just uncontrollably losing, just you know, losing my emotions. I'm sitting there crying. She finally wakes up, and I knew in my head I wanted her to hear me cry. I wanted her to wake up because I wanted, I wanted her to initiate communication so I could confess what I had done. And I I will never forget. and, And I use this as a tool to this day. To remind myself why I'm never going to go back to that place and be that person again. Because I remember her sitting up and me telling her what happened. And she didn't get mad. She didn't yell at me. She lost the light of love within her eyes for me. All feelings for me went out of her eyes. And I could tell that her feelings toward me were gone. And in that moment, our relationship was done it wasn't you know like i'm i'm mad at you I, I i don't trust you all that like that trust had been broken so many times that she was numb to these confessions to these problems to these issues that i was having and this was just the final straw that said okay i feel nothing for you anymore she said go sleep on the couch tonight and move out tomorrow oh. so you know I, and i still had to go to work the next day and obviously i'm not real focused at work and i'm sitting there texting her non-stop trying to figure out where she's at like can, can I come home? And, you know, she was just like, just let me know when you're on your way home. I'm going to take the kids out. You can come and pack your bags and you can go let me know when you're gone so I can go back home with the kids. I don't want you seeing the kids. I don't want you seeing me. I mean, it was just a complete severing of our space together. Our, our bubble had been popped. And so I, you know, I asked her where, where am I going to live? Where do you want me to go? She said, I don't care. Figure it out. I'm, I'm done trying to do things for you i'm done trying to fix you
0: hold up cam jeez so <laughs> you're reading this text that your wife said i'm just gonna wait you just grab your stuff i'll just come home once you're out the door cam what goes through your head when you read that from your wife
1: absolute fear just fear of losing everything fear of loss of control fear of loss of family i didn't think i was ever going to see my kids again that was honestly and a lot of people maybe it sounds cliche or maybe people don't believe it when i say this that was the best possible thing that could have happened to me in that moment because what that did was that sparked uh that fear turned into desperation and that desperation led to action and that and i i tell my guys that that are in my men's groups all the time i tell them if you are not in a place of desperation you are not ready to change You have to be as though you are drowning and trying to swim for your life. That's the kind of state you have to be in mentally and emotionally in order to be able to make real change. You have to be afraid of losing either someone else or that part of yourself that still has goodness within it. So I was able to procure a shed in the backyard of one of our neighbors and I I slept in a sleeping bag in a shed in the middle of winter.
0: Here it is, you are now a sleeping bag, this cold shed cam is by himself. What do you say to yourself at that moment? And what were your emotions at that time?
1: Well, I I think this is one of those crossroads that you come to, you know, that you can either succumb to the situation that you've been given and you can just, you can throw in the towel and you can just say it is what it is. I've lost my wife. I've lost my kids. I I did end up uh, losing my job a couple months later. Um, Ooh. So, um, out, out of work, out of family, out of fatherhood, uh, I, I, I had nothing. and uh, But sitting in that shed, I fell to my knees and, and I made a choice in that moment that I was going to fight like a freaking dragon. I was going to fight like everything depended on me changing in order to just get some sort of communication back with my family. And so I I turned to prayer, I turned to scripture, I turned to, I I got a therapist. I started going to a men's group, but it, it all came from that moment sitting there in that shed alone, cold, and being afraid of losing everything that I had to make a choice. I had to make a decision at that crossroad. Do I accept my fate and what I've been given or do I start fighting? Is this the point that my life turns around for the better? And it was all action steps after that of, OK, start going to a group, get a therapist, start talking to someone, start being open and honest, even when you relapse, talk about it and be a new version of yourself. And so that's what I started doing. And and man, talk about switching from one addiction to the other, but trading out, you know, a, a spoon for a broadsword. It was It was absolutely amazing. I got so caught up in the power that came from sitting in a group full of men who all of them said they struggled with the exact same things as me. They'd been where I had been and that there was still hope. There was still light at the end of this tunnel and that I was not completely lost. I I was not abandoned by hope and happiness. There was still a chance for that, even if that didn't include my wife and family in the future it still could include it for myself
0: you are now taking care of cam now it's not just the family and making sure yeah well to make sure the kids and everything now cam was it seemed like now you were in as you said desperation mode and emergency mode let me just take care of me first cam now that you're in a group you're talking to these men and you're telling them things that hey no one else knew cam you're now speaking the truth what was this like of not just speaking the truth, but speaking of your addiction truth to men. Imagine
1: being told to pick up a couple hundred pound dumbbells and to hold it as long as possible and that you were not allowed to get it go. You were not allowed to let it go. In fact, they were gonna tape it to your hands. That's what it's like living in an addiction. So then imagine what it feels like after years of carrying around those dumbbells and the pain and the anguish that goes with that and someone finally cutting, coming up and cutting the tape and saying, let it go. Mm. That that relief, it was a complete liberation from that burden that I had been holding on to for so long. And I, I, could, I felt like I could breathe for the first time. I felt like I could carry myself for the first time. I felt like for the first time since I was 14 years old, I no longer had to hide who I was and that I was worthy of love and that I was worthy of happiness. Now, that didn't mean that all of a sudden everything in my life turned around and got better. That was a 4-year process. Ooh. For
0: Say that again. How long?
1: 4 years, man.
0: Ooh. Yeah.
1: So, so if you think that you can just like start recovery and 3 months later be like, "Hey, I hit 90 days." i'm i'm good i'm cured i'm I, like like let's bring all the relationships and all the happiness back in give me my job back give me my wife and my kids back i i deserve it all because i went 90 days so much better yeah no it doesn't happen that way it's a continual process of failing and learning and then failing and then learning and then growing and then doing and then failing it's just it's this cyclical thing that you go to but now instead of spiraling downwards into an abyss of misery you're now spiraling upwards toward a peak of greatness and control and happiness
0: and hope You're now with this group of men telling them what's going on you're starting to see it not a big big change but three years three and three and a half four years of you working on you and then cam when did you decide it's time for me to go and get my home back
1: like I said, I ended up losing my job. And uh, so I got another job that moved me to Vegas. So I actually went to live in Las Vegas while my wife and kids stayed in Utah. Amazing, of all places. I know, right? And what's so cool about it, I mean, you would think, you know, Vegas, not the best place for uh, for a sex addict to go to. Um, however, I mean, if you're not near the strip, it's, it's really not nearly as bad as a lot of people think. They identify Vegas by that strip, but I was far away from that and I never went anywhere near the strip. I, Never even drove near
0: it. So smart man. Yeah, smart <laughs> yeah. man. And folks, if you've never been to Vegas, I promise you, outside the strip, there is nothing. So yeah,
1: <laughs> you're right. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's all a bunch of suburbia and just <laughs> businesses. I mean, I mean, it's like any other town. So mm-hmm. it's nothing real special. But I I went to, so so I go to Vegas and ironically, I guess not ironically, I believe it was fate. I, I believe you know it was in God's hands. Uh, the the men's program that I was in. In in Utah, had one other location in the entire country where they had an in person men's group where I could go and sit with a group of men in a room and continue my recovery. And you know where that was? Las Vegas, Nevada. Of all places, the only other place in the United States of America that had this program was there in Las Vegas. And it was just such a slap in the face of faith <laughs> of God of God saying look i I, you got no excuses no excuses (laughs) to to continue doing what you were doing or or to say well there's not a group i can't go yeah no excuses so i keep going and not only do do my numbers start getting better and i start understanding more and i continued in therapy and uh my my wife actually eventually she came out there and and brought our kids, and we actually ended up. Um, she agreed to live in the same house, but we were in home separated. Uh, she got the master bedroom, and she basically said, "Like, hey, look, like, you don't step in this bedroom. Like, it's it's not your place." And and it wasn't a threat. Right. It was the, these are my boundaries. Right. I I'm not at a good place with you. Still, you have your room. I have mine. This is my safe place. Across this threshold, I know that I never have to worry about. Uh, hurtful conversations with you I know I never have to worry about you being too close to me when I'm not ready for it it, it was just this is my place of safety and I expect
0: you to respect that that's and, an interesting brother that your wife will say that that bedroom by herself was her safe place and not with you because she didn't feel safe with you at that moment Cam, how did I right. feel hearing that from your wife
1: well, by that point, you know I was I was a year and a, I was I was a year, year and a half into my recovery, and so I un, I understood, and we had had a lot of conversations about boundaries, and my therapist had talked to me a lot about boundaries, about how boundaries are not rules to punish you, that they are boundaries are guidelines to show you how to love a person best, mm. and so and so when someone comes to you and they say, hey, look, this is my line, and I would appreciate if you didn't cross it. It's not, it's not them saying I want to keep you at arm's length, it's, it's them saying if you want to love me, respect this boundary. Because by respecting that boundary then I will understand that you respect me and I will start to trust you. And so that, that's what I did. Living in that house, we lived there for a year, I never once went into that bedroom. Except to move in and to move out. Really. That's the only time I ever stepped foot in that bedroom. You are a strong a, brother. I, I mean, it was, you know, it was just one of those things that I I knew it was not my place. My place was not at that time was not in in bed with her. It wasn't. It wasn't in that sanctuary that she had. She needed that space, and if we were going to heal, she had her own healing process to go through. That's right. So I had to allow her to go through that healing process. The worst thing you can do when you've got an open wound is to sit there and poke it with a dirty stick. That's right. And I was not about to be the one that caused, that made the infection last even longer. Mm. So back to the group that I was in, I, like I said, I got so caught up in how amazing it made me feel that I decided while I was living in Las Vegas, hey, I wanna be a mentor. I, I wanna be one of the guys that brings other guys into this, that helps other guys find their path, find their truth, find their light when they have, when they feel like there's nothing left when they were sitting where I was sitting in their first and second week saying, there's no hope for me. You don't understand the kind of person I am. I'm a filthy, unlovable, despicable human being and no one could ever love me. To look at them and say, well, that's not true because I'm looking at you and I love you. And I know where you are because I've been there. And because I've been there, you can look at me and you can see how happy I am, how great my life is going right now and you can understand if there's hope for me then there's definitely hope for you so i ended up becoming a mentor and after about three years of recovery did i had one of the most amazing moments of my married life and that was the moment my wife held my hand of her own free will and choice for the first time in mm. three years of being separated dude let me let me tell you a lot of people talk about like the the passion that you get like when you first fall in love and everything and, and that that physical connection that you get. Let me tell you, there is few things more intense than fighting like hell for a relationship and finally having this moment of connection that you've been fighting for for years. Day and night, praying for it, crying over it, working toward it, going to therapy over it to finally have her take my hand dude i lost my mind over a handhold bro it it wasn't it wasn't sex it it wasn't this like big intimate moment it was this small amazing just moment of tenderness
0: yes and look some of y'all fellas who are listening or ladies who was listening to that and saying really man listen y'all remember back in high school when that person (laughs) you liked who brush past and you're like, she brushed me, she touched me. She but touched yeah, my knuckles bro. My, come on now, y'all y'all know about that. So don't play yourselves. Cam, so now wifey holds your hand, makes that physical touch. What was it like now to finally talk and say what was on your heart? She do the same with you.
1: This is why, why I love our story because it wasn't like all of a sudden I could hold her hand whenever I wanted at that point. It was in that moment she was okay with it. And, and this is why communication and trust and boundaries are so important in a healthy relationship. Because I had to be willing to accept that the next day, she might not have been feeling that way. And if I went to hold her hand, she could pull away and had every right to to pull away and to say, right now I'm not okay holding your hand.
0: And you were ready I was, for that?
1: I, I had to be, yeah. I was ready for that be I, I could have been like no no no, you held my hand yesterday. I deserve this. I'm entitled to this. I've worked for this no 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 I don't I don't work for the reward. I work for being the best version of myself and that version is granted trust when she's okay giving it. but it, it's not about those moments of she allows me to hold her hand or that she she graces me with a kiss. It's the constant state of trust and confidence and safety that she feels, that's the reward. And the fruits of that are those moments of physical intimacy.
0: Your wife finally came out this cocoon of mistrust and everything else that was happening in between y'all. What was it that she said that finally made it feel like, okay, we're getting back on the right track here?
1: Mm, Yeah, Now, what she said was amazing. Uh, she said, I'm so happy that I can trust you. Yeah. So, you, you know, it's, it's not this thing of like, I'm, I'm so proud of what you've done with your life or anything like that. She was, but what she, what she felt the most was she felt that relief and that happiness that finally she had a husband she could trust. That even, even a husband who was still making mistakes. I mean, at that point, I was still only going about every 90 to uh, 120 days of sobriety at a time, gradually getting more and more space there. But she was like, it's not about, it's not about the numbers. It's not about the relapses. It's about the fact that I know if you do mess up, you're going to come talk to me. I know that if you are getting tempted, you're going to come talk to me. I know that if you do download that dating app again, you're going to delete it. And then you're going to come tell me that you did that. And, and you're not going to be afraid to do that because I'm not here to punish you. Like we, and basically affirming in that moment that we were now in this together. It was no longer her needing to be on her personal journey of healing and i needed to be on my own personal journey of healing now it was we got to be on our journey of healing and so that's when like the couples therapy started and we started having these more vulnerable in-depth conversations and trusting each other more and again yes i i held her hand and it probably took another two months for a kiss to happen and for us, and and then uh, it took uh, quite a bit while longer for us to, for her to be like, and she told me, she was like, I'm okay if you ask me on a date now. And that, again, that was another one of those amazing moments of reward that I get, I got, I was given the honor to court my wife, to gain her approval and to show her how much I appreciated her and how attracted to her I was and to do it with respect and and love and kindness. And you know, then it was an even longer time after that, that we actually called each other for a while, boyfriend and girlfriend. And I asked her to be my girlfriend, even though she was still my wife, we, we never got officially divorced. She's still my wife, but no, no, in that moment, she was my girlfriend, man. And, and I, I loved it. I was like, oh, I'm, I'm like, I'm giddy over like having a girl. Yeah, she's my wife, but no, no, she's my girlfriend. And then uh, I I proposed to her and she became my fiance. And we uh, we got an additional rings to put on her wedding ring to commemorate that. And then we renewed our vows at a family reunion with all of our family there. And it was beautiful. And even still then we renewed our vows, technically remarried didn't mean we started having sex right away. Uh-huh. Again, that was another landmark that didn't come for months after that. And to this day, I mean, we, we're, we're good. We're solid. We, we are, we are a rock star couple in my mind. And if she were to come to me today and say, Hey, uh, that girl's name came up on social media and I'm feeling triggered. I, I really, I, I don't want to be near you right now. I'm not going to take offense to that. I'm going to be understanding and say, okay, like you you have every right to still feel those triggers, to, to still be dealing with some issues. And that that might last a very long time. It could last the rest of our marriage. That That's okay. What I'm going to do for her is give her a husband that's never going to lash out at her. Give her a husband that she can trust to not react, but to uh, respond with kindness. And it's going to listen, to understand, not to respond. Not to try and fix everything or tell her how broken she is or gaslight her, but to be someone that she can talk to and come to in full confidence and love.
0: Mr. Harrison, why do you keep your towel?
1: I keep my towel because this fight that I have entered into of fighting for freedom from addiction and freedom from those compulsions that ruled my life for half my life, I can never, ever go back down that road and, and and see that look of loss of trust and loss of love in the faces of my loved ones again. To hear the disappointment and to have to confess things like that again. So I, I keep my towel not only for myself and the person I fought so hard to become, but for the family that I love so much and that I fought so hard to protect and be the one that gets to raise my kids and love my wife. And I also am keeping my towel because there are people out there who know my story and who have been affected by my story and I want to be available for them. I want to be an instrument that can help guide them to hope when they feel like there's no hope left for them. So I fight for myself, my family and for others that need to know that there is still a chance for change. If anyone who is listening to this believes that all hope is lost for them, that voice inside of you that's telling you that, you need to tell them to shut up because that's not true. There's always hope for change. You can always take the, a, a step in a different direction. There's there's a quote that says, who is righteous? It says, any man who is repenting is a righteous man. It does not matter where you stand on the stair steps of life. It What matters is the direction you are facing. So we can't sit there and compare ourselves to others and... Say, oh, I'm, I'm just not as good as other people. What matters, the only thing that matters is that you are choosing to face in a direction that makes you a better person.
0: There you have it. My man just gave you some serious jewels and some gems that you need to hear coming from an once addict, former addict, and now being a person who is helping others to get through this incredible fight that not only men but women are going through. And it's a silent fight, but is now being put on the forefront. So, Cam, if there's any information, social media, podcast information that you have out there, my man, let's hear it. The floor is yours, homeboy.
1: The reason we, we actually linked up, you and I are both podcasters. So I actually have a show that, uh, that helps those that struggle with uh, pornography and sex addiction and compulsion and you can find that it's called recovering you it's on every major podcast platform spotify apple anchor google podcast it's on all those it's called recovering you by cameron harrison you can also find my facebook page facebook.com forward slash recovering you podcast
0: but folks i'm gonna go ahead put all the stuff in there social media and podcasting you're gonna be able to check them out and catch it i promise y'all i promise y'all this you want to hear it there's like two episodes in there that i love that's on there. So y'all gotta y'all got go ahead and check it out. All right, Cam, if there's any last words you wanna give. Yeah, I just
1: wanna remind everyone that um, you are worth fighting for, you're awesome, regardless of the mistakes that you've made. The The, the thing I live my life by is, uh, I, I live what's called a day one mantra. And that is that every day, regardless of what happened yesterday, regardless of what happened in your past, every day is a an opportunity to have a fresh start. It's a, a brand new day and also to live it one day at a time. And to also know that if you go back down that road you went down before, in one day, you could lose everything. So you got to fight to not get dragged back down that path. Day one, baby.
0: Day one. If you're out there, look, now you got help. My man had to go ahead and do something. And that was him being vulnerable and understanding there was a tribe who was just like him. And now he is also leading that army. Cameron, congratulations. You have officially survived Boogie's gym. And this sparring session is officially over. It is over. It is over. Like I always tell you, wipe the blood, wipe the sweat, wipe the tears. But whatever you do, don't throw in your towel. This is your man and boogie. I will check you when I check you. I'll see you when I see you. We are out of here. Peace.